Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Greg Bluestein. Greg is a political reporter who covers the governor's office and state politics for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He is the go-to person for everything related to Georgia politics right now, an extremely busy man. Welcome, Greg. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you so much for having me. So I think that we all know that all eyes are on Georgia right now because there are two Senate runoffs and the balance of power for the U.S. Senate hangs, in fact, in the balance. So if both Democratic challengers win, then the Senate will be 50-50. And who's the tie-breaking vote? But Vice President Kamala Harris. And the joke is, of course, that she'll then spend more time in the Senate as vice president than she did as a senator. We don't know if that will come to pass or not, but that's certainly why we're all looking at Georgia I feel like that's basically what people know about these races. Could you first tell us a little bit about the two Republican incumbents? What would you want people to know about them? Well, they're very different and they're very similar. Um, They're both political outsiders with a background in business. Um, They both are very conservative and they're both closely, closely tied to President Trump. Um, But in Senator Perdue's case, he he won an, uh, an open election for an open seat back in 2014. So he's been tested by the voters before. Um, he won by about eight points over Democrat Michelle Nunn, and, and before that won a very, very competitive um, Republican primary um, for the nomination. Whereas Senator Leffler, whose husband runs what's called the Atlanta-based uh, Intercontinental Exchange, is a giant financial trading platform that owns the New York Stock Exchange. She was appointed to the office just a year ago by Governor Kemp. And so up until November, she had never been tested by voters before. Um, and so this is her, her first real foray into politics. And what a time to, to, to enter politics in Georgia. Wow. Speaking of entering politics, both Democrats are obviously challengers. Can you tell us, again, 30,000 foot view, a little bit about both of them? Yeah, well, very, very different, very, very similar in the same vein. Uh, both of them are embracing um, liberal policies that, you know, just a few years ago would have been unthinkable for Democrats to um to follow. You know, I'm talking about legalization of marijuana. I'm talking about staunch opposition to, to anti-abortion legislation. I'm talking about support for gun control. I mean, these are things that Democrats just wouldn't talk about five, six, seven years ago on the campaign trail. And now they are. And, you know, when it comes to differences, John Ossoff is this Jewish 33-year-old son of an Australian immigrant whose mentor is John Lewis, the late John Lewis, the, the civil rights hero who died this past summer of pancreatic cancer. Reverend Warnock is the pastor of Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church. He's a first-time politician who literally presides over the pulpit of the congregation that Martin Luther King Jr. Um, used to preside over. And so African-American, both of them represent kind of different factions of, of a state party. Um, John Ossoff being young, liberal, white. Reverend Warnock being African-American, the core constituency of the Georgia Democratic Party in Georgia. Uh, and both of them are hoping to represent different blocks of the electorate that don't usually vote in runoffs in Georgia. Historically, younger voters and, and black voters have have not participated in runoffs in the same way that, that older, whiter, conservative voters have. And that's why Republicans have won every statewide runoff in Georgia history. So as always, a lot of this is going to come down to turnout. And I want to talk about what we're seeing in early turnout in a moment. But first... 
you've written about this, and I think it's important to talk about why are we even here? Can you tell us a little bit about Georgia's runoff system? Yeah, it's very complicated. It's been it's it's gone on for decades, but essentially it was passed uh, back when Democrats controlled Georgia politics, and it was mostly white rural conservative Democrats. Um, there's different differing theories about how this has worked out, but essentially uh, one of the one of the better theories is that it was meant to help white white Democrats uh, win statewide office um, as as to ward off black uh, urban Democrats who are running. Um, Democrats were worried that multiple white candidates would split the vote and seed the and pave the way for for a, uh, a a black Democrat with the plurality of support to win, and so they instituted uh, runoffs um, that that helped preserve uh, white control of Georgia politics. And again, back then, Democrats controlled every lever of, of, of power in Georgia. And since then, these runoff rules um, have now benefited Republicans because, um, as I mentioned earlier. The, the runoff electorate tends to be older, whiter, and more conservative, which which all helps um, Republicans who are who are running for office. And so that that's the sort of template that we have here. Um, you know, a lot a lot of states still have, or several states still have rules where runoffs are required for primaries. But Georgia is the only one where runoffs are still required for statewide races. And that means that if candidates in Georgia don't get a majority of the vote, we are headed to runoffs. Nice and expensive and in really a nice way, as you put it, to try and kind of pick the electorate that you think will be most useful for you. And actually, let's just talk about this now. The electorate has changed a lot in the last four years. Can you talk about what the Georgia electorate looked like back in 2016 and compares to what it looks like right now? Yeah, um, things have changed a lot since even since 2018, when the last time we had a statewide runoff, because there's voter enthusiasm and and, and energy on the ground that you just didn't have. Um, let, let's say back in 2008, the last time there was a Senate runoff in Georgia. Look, the the results of elections, statewide elections, the last decade show how much Georgia's changed. Um, in in 2012 and 2014, Republicans won statewide by about eight points. In 2016, Donald Trump won the state by about five points. In 2018, Governor Kemp won by about a point and a half, the Republican governor. And just you know, a few weeks ago, Joe Biden carried the state by about 12,000 votes. So you've seen the, the narrowing Republican margins, and Democrats have, have seized upon that. But also, the Democratic strategy has dramatically changed. No longer are Democrats running as Republican light in Georgia. They're not talking about themselves as NRA Democrats. They're not trying to appeal directly towards white moderates who might have voted Democratic years ago, but are now voting Republican. Instead, they're embracing liberal approaches, the, the same things I talked about earlier, um, you know, criminal justice reforms, um, expanding voting rights, uh, gun control, aggressively opposing religious liberty legislation they see as discriminatory and embracing LGBTQ rights, things that in Georgia, you just wouldn't talk about years ago. And that's helped them win over the more moderate suburbs for sure, but also just turn out giant vote in Metro Atlanta's core Democratic bastions, where they're winning 80% plus of the vote. It's interesting. So the candidates and the electorate are both changing probably a little bit as a result of each. The candidates can change. The Democrats can run as not Republican light because they have a different electorate and the electorate can hope for uh, slightly different 
candidates. Is that a, about right that they're both kind of changing together for similar reasons? Yeah, I mean, as as the Democratic counties become bluer, the Republican rural counties have become, for the large part, redder. Not all of them, um, and there's some very big causes for concern for Republicans. Um, but you're seeing, you know, counties that not so long ago Republicans were winning with 60 percent of the vote. You're seeing them go towards 80, 90 percent of the vote. Um, and Republicans uh, aren't moving to the middle at all. You would think that some thought that after 2018 was such a narrow Republican victory that the governor Kemp would come in and, and, you know, and try to go for some more broader based policies. And certainly he did in some sense. But at, at the same time, Republicans also pushed anti-abortion legislation that just infuriated Democrats and really galvanized and energized them. So it's very um, it's, it's been very polarizing politics here. It really does sound like a microcosm of the rest of the country where everybody's just shifting to their sides and nobody's really coming to the center. And of course, what happens in Georgia has such huge implications uh, for how we will govern for the next at least four years. And you, you talked a little bit about the blue areas, the red areas. What are we seeing in terms of early voter turnout? Is it higher than expected? Is it historically high? And is it only historically high from certain areas? Yeah, it's staggering. Um, nearly 3 million people have already cast their ballots early by far shattering uh, every statewide runoff record we've ever we've ever had in Georgia, um, which says a lot, which it says one, you know, that Georgians reflect, they, they understand the stakes of this election, that all the money being spent, all the attention isn't falling on deaf ears here. There's a lot of exhausted voters, but they're still trudging through all the, the bombardment and voting. Um, but also, as you mentioned, as you sort of hinted, um, we're seeing disproportionately high African-American turnout, which is good news for Democrats. And we're also seeing um, in the Democratic bastions, higher turnout. So Metro Atlanta, there's higher turnout, um, higher early voting turnout. In what we call the Black Belt, which is um, is called that because of, of, of the fertile soil, but really it's also a, a stretch of predominantly African-American um, rural counties through the middle of Georgia. You're seeing higher turnout too. And to Republican chagrin, you're seeing some of the lowest early voting participation in North Georgia, where, where there's a huge chunk of, of Republican voters out there still waiting to be tapped. And look, that's the reason why when President Trump heads here on Monday, he's heading right to Northwest Georgia, where the lowest performing congressional district, North, the 14th district, uh, that district lags behind every other congressional district when it comes to early voting participation. Yeah, I want to talk about the role of the president and the president-elect, but before we leave these early turnout numbers, uh, so Republicans, it sounds like Democrats are, I mean, again, I feel like I'm talking about the presidential election where early voting numbers, the records are being shattered, but those are largely numbers of Democratic voters and Republicans are banking on the in-person same-day turnout. Is that about what's happening again here where Republicans are saying, we're going to make it up on election day. Wait for January 5th. We're going to make it up. 100%. Because look, if you look at why Joe Biden won, and I know that this, you know, in, in some other uh, states, uh, we thought were battleground states around the nation, he ended up losing. Um, but in Georgia, he won because he built a giant, early voting lead, especially when it came to mail-in ballots. And it was a lead that ultimately Republicans couldn't overcome with election day turnout. And in Georgia, there was a lot of fretting 
over the, the possibility that January 5th on Tuesday, there could be ice storm, there could be cold weather, there could be rain. And right now the forecast looks like it's going to be 60 degrees and, and nice weather. So that, that is fortunate for them. But there is pleas from the top of the ticket, from Vice President Mike Pence, from Republican officials and mailers saying, hey, you know, it's okay to vote by mail. And it was a somewhat disorienting message for a lot of Republicans because they've been heard, they've been hearing from President Trump, no less, for months that the mail-in balloting system was fraudulent, that it was full of problems. And then they were, you know, then turn, they turn around in, in mid-November and they're being told, hey, use the system because we don't know what the weather will be like on January 5th. But as it stands now, um, Democrats look like they have a sizable advantage in early voting. And so it all comes down for Republicans to a robust election day turnout. It's interesting you use the word disorienting. And I, this is another question I want to talk about, which is that it seems like this election has divided Republicans in the sense that there are the Trump Republicans who have been told and continue to say there's something about the Georgia election, the presidential election that was just rigged and filled with fraud and you can't trust it and you can't trust vote by mail. But then there are Republicans in Georgia, more, I would say, establishment Republicans saying, no, no, it's actually, it's okay. We know how to run elections. You absolutely should trust our elections. You absolutely should trust the vote by mail system. And it seems like there's these two competing messages. I mean, has this really created fault lines among Republicans in Georgia? Yeah, it's no exaggeration to say there's a full-fledged Republican civil war going on here. And I don't say that lightly, but but when you've got the president of the United States calling for the Republican governor he endorsed in 2002, saying that, sorry, in 2018, I should say, um, saying that he should resign from office, there's no way to avoid it, right? I mean, like he is, he is the president now is encouraging primary challengers against the three three of the top Republican statewide elected officials in Georgia, that's Secretary of State Raffensperger, Governor Kemp, and Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, all fighting against them because they have all refused his his claims that there is widespread voter fraud in Georgia. And they the president demands that they basically overturn the free and fair election in Georgia. This is just me talking. I know that you're a journalist, but this is just based on lies. There is no evidence of this. Judges throughout the country, state court judges, federal judges, judges appointed by Republicans, judges appointed by Democrats, judges of all affiliations and backgrounds have said there's no evidence of this. But I'm wondering more generally when it comes to the Georgia runoff elections, how much of a role is disinformation playing in these elections? I mean, are there certain lies that are dominating the campaigns? 100%. And and it's it's playing a giant role because Georgia's become ground zero for, for disinformation. Um, even, even right before we, we chatted, uh, the president and his, his top lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, have been tweeting falsehoods about Georgia's election system and, and asserting wrongly that the legislature is on the cusp of decertifying um, President-elect Biden's win here in Georgia. And, and, and like there's not, no amount, <laughs> you know, we've come to the conclusion is, you know, there, there's a role that, of course, the news media plays in in fact checking um but there's also a parallel universe out there where uh, republicans are getting their own lines of of reasoning from and i shouldn't just say republicans because a lot of republicans don't don't believe um, any of these falsehoods but there are a line of devoted trump supporters who are buying into this fantasy and they're propagating it 
and they believe, you know, I've talked to many of them who just say like flat out that Joe Biden won't be inaugurated, that, that, that Trump won Georgia's election. And they're, they're seizing on to things that you know, these debunked conspiracy theories that state Republican elections officials have said are falsehoods or phony or shams, but they're still seizing on them and, uh, and, and pushing them. This is certainly going to have to be an issue that we confront going forward when a significant percentage of the electorate believes in just outright lies and falsehoods. And I want to turn to another topic that I know listeners will be curious about, which is you said there's a lot of money being spent. And I've just seen the headlines, which is essentially that fundraising numbers have broken records. Could you tell us about who the most prodigious fundraisers are? Is money coming mostly from in-state or from out-of-state? Is it mostly candidate focus and or are we seeing a lot of outside like PAC money? Is it just everything uh, combined? There's just a ton of money to go around for everybody. <laughs> what, what's the lay of the land there in terms of campaign finance? We're basically in a, like a tidal wave of money down here in a way that no one's ever seen this before. This is These are the most expensive political contests in the nation's history and in terms of Senate, right? Not, not, not at the presidential level yet, but it ain't that far away from it. We're at $800 million plus in spending overall for these two runoffs. Um, $500 million has been spent alone on TV ads. So that gives you a sense of, of, of what happens every time we turn on the TV or stream something on YouTube or whatever. We are, we are being bombarded. My kids are coming to me in the morning and saying, Daddy, is what they said about Raphael Warnock really true? Is, is, you know, is Kelly Leffler really a crook? All this stuff that, you know, 10-year-olds are seeing because they can't avoid it. Um, we're seeing flyers. We're getting phone calls. I get, you know, 10, 15 text messages a day from different voter outreach groups making sure that I, I voted or that I know about this or that accusation. Um, so a tide of money, and this is where it splits. Uh, the, the Democratic candidates have far outraised the Republican rivals. Both Warnock and Ossoff raised more than $100 million in two months. Astounding amount of money for any sort of state election, um, especially one in Georgia. But Republicans are outspending Democrats when it comes to outside spending. So all those super PACs coming in are vastly outspending um, Democrats. And it's gotten so bizarre that even though Democrats set all sorts of fundraising records just a week ago, they also pinned a campaign memo basically begging for more money, saying that they were being outspent overall. Um, so even though you're seeing headlines of these record performances, they're still pleading for more cash. Well, that's a truism in politics, right? There will never be enough money. There will never be uh, fully funded as long as it doesn't turn off the voters, which it sounds like uh, right now, everybody's under the impression that the money is still going to make a difference. Now, here's another question about whether or not this will make a difference. Something I wanted to ask you about, or I said I was going to ask you about a few minutes ago, is the influence of the president who lost and then the president-elect, who obviously won in Georgia, how big do you think President Trump's coattails are? He's coming to Georgia. He's going to hold a big rally. I mean, in my mind, I hear big rally and I think of super spreader event. And I know that shows my you know, personal bias, I'm sure. Is there a, do you think, realistic hope that he can really energize enough people to come out? How big are his coattails right now? He did lose the state in addition to losing the entire election. Yeah, look, he's the most polarizing person in Georgia politics, just like national politics. But at the same time, he is the moneymaker. He is the breadwinner. He, he is the guy that these two Republican incumbents have to tie themselves to. 
because they cannot win this race without also winning over his most loyal supporters. This is all about base turnout. This is not about persuading on the fence, middle of the road um, voters out there. It's all about tapping into the same pool of 2.5 million or so voters that both parties already showed they can get out. That's the roadmap for them. And so the Republicans uh, recognized very early on that they have to tie themselves even tighter to President Trump. They can't afford to distance themselves whatsoever. And that's why this rally he's holding is so important to them. And you've seen that in their campaign rhetoric. They both have refused to acknowledge Joe Biden's victory. They both have echoed some of Trump's false attacks on the election system in Georgia. They both recently endorsed the president's call for $2,000 direct stimulus checks. So in every it shapes every form and facet of their campaigns. And it's not like they're putting any sort of um, separation between themselves and the president on the campaign trail. They talk about how they're 100% devoted uh, to, to, to President Trump. And at the lone Senate debate, um, Kelly Leffler was asked, it seemed like half a dozen times, whether or not she would support the president's uh, false claims of, of, of widespread voting fraud and what she had to say about the president's attacks on Governor Kemp for not intervening in the election. And each time she said that she backs the president and she, she supports uh, any effort he makes to, uh, to, to assert his challenges, which have all been thrown out by the court system. So that, that gives you a glimpse of how important the president is to these two Republican incumbents. Yes, one that I suspected I knew the answer, but was unhappy to hear it. And what about on the other side, President-elect Biden? He won the state, but narrowly. 12,000 votes is not a resounding victory. Is there, you think, realistic hope on behalf of Democrats that he could get more people, I assume more kind of unlikely voters to the polls? Yeah, um, it's a great question because Kamala Harris, the vice president-elect, is also coming to Georgia. And her main mission is to be continuing to, to, to urge African-American voters and, and just voters of color in general to come out and support John Ossoff and, and Reverend Warnock, saying that what's exactly what's at stake in November is now at stake in January. I think President-elect Biden has a slightly different mission. He's going to make that case, too, saying that his agenda is on the line. Look, in Georgia, you can't turn on the TV without hearing an ad saying that that John Ossoff or Raphael Warnock are liberal extremists. They're too extreme for Georgia. They're too radical. And I think by having someone like Biden, who is you know who's much more moderate than many other members of his party, um, up on the stage with John Ossoff and, and Raphael Warnock, it'll send the message to Georgia voters who might who might have been pummeled by those that, that radical extremist messaging for the last nine weeks and plus plus months before that in the general campaign that these guys are okay with Biden. And that they're not going to, you know, represent a sea change in in they're not going to like pave the way to socialism in Georgia like the Republicans have been asserting. Yes, there's that misused word by both sides, socialism. And um, at a certain point, I think we need to devote an entire episode to just talking about what these terms actually mean and how we misuse them. But is there one thing that you wish people outside of Georgia knew about this election? Is there something that you'd like to educate listeners about? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, the one, one of the biggest persistent um, misrepresentations is of the suburbs of Atlanta, because that's, that's been the really where a lot of the actions happened. Um, that's the, the suburbs are the, are the main reason why Georgia's gone from a comfortably Republican state to a, to a, a suddenly, a, you know, a battleground slash purple blue state, right? Um, but the suburbs have long been seen as a stand-in for like just white, you know, white middle class 
uh, America. And it used to be that way, not, not so long ago. A few decades ago, the suburbs were overwhelmingly white. But the suburbs have changed dramatically, um, especially when it comes to Gwinnett County, one of, one of Atlanta's most populous suburbs. It's one of the, also the, one of the most diverse counties in Georgia. And so I think it's a, it's a danger for, for people from the outside, you know, just who, who stereotypically view suburbs as just stand-ins for white. It's not that way anymore. And that explains also why the state has changed so much, is because the suburbs are changing and, um, and more amenable to democratic messaging. And as always, this is going to have to be something that Republicans will confront, which is where is their base going and is it going to be demographically realistic for them to hold power this way? And that was just me editorializing. Right after we hung up the phone with Greg, the news broke that Senator Perdue was potentially exposed to COVID-19 and that he was quarantining. We called Greg back to ask him how could this potentially affect the race? Yeah, we're not quite sure how this news will affect the final days of the campaign, but we know for sure that it scrambles Senator Perdue's entire schedule. Um, he's virtual campaigning at least over the next couple of days. And what we don't know yet is whether or not he will appear with President Trump. Thanks to Greg for that response. And now back to our regularly scheduled three questions. Greg, we learned a lot from you. As loyal listeners know, I always like to end the podcast with three questions, which I suspect have nothing to do with the Georgia election, but we'll <laughs> see what your answers are. Um, the first question is, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? Oh, that's a good one. Should I just say what everyone says, like Abe Lincoln or something? Um, you know, I, I'd probably say um, my great-grandfather, um, Hyman Karish, who came over and started a, a business in Charleston, South Carolina, um, a, a dry goods business. And I've got other um, great grandfathers and <laughs> who also came over and started biz, small businesses in, in South Carolina of all places. But it would be fascinating to hear about firsthand hear about their experiences as young Jewish settlers uh, and immigrants to America and how they adapted to uh, life in the South, as it were, back then. A couple of really interesting books about that as well. Um, question number two, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? I will show how lame I am and how undistinguished and unrefined my palate is, but I'll say I'll say buffalo chicken fingers, actually lemon pepper, hot lemon pepper um, chicken fingers from J.R. Crickets in Atlanta and <laughs> French fries because I try not to eat them that much. Uh, I know they're bad for me. They're bad for my heart. Boy, are they great comfort food when I need it the most. While I take an antacid thinking about that, last question is, you get one superpower for an hour. What is it and why? Ooh, that's a good one. I would just say, I guess maybe invincibility, so I could just do whatever I wanted to. And I hope it, you know, I just jump off buildings and <laughs> run into speeding traffic just to see uh, the reaction it would cause. Uh, I don't really want to be invisible. I don't really want to fly. It would just be cool to be invincible just for an hour. And then you could eat all of the chicken wings you want too, because oh, it would cause no problems whatsoever. So this. We have to talk about how elastic those invincible powers are. Cause like, would the cholesterol build up behind the shield? Oh, you could be a lawyer. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great <laughs> question. I have had a wonderful time talking to you. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thanks for having me. 
You can find Greg on Twitter at Bluestein. You can find me on Twitter at Levins and Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. And thank you to our listeners. This is a huge topic dealing with both politics and the law. And I'm so thrilled that Greg was here. And we wish everybody a healthy and happy new year. And we will talk to you soon.